Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. This week on TWIP, photography goodness from the Consumer Electronics Show, Polaroid to launch photo bar retail outlets, Art.com acquires Zenfolio, and a discussion with Giulio Schiorio, the guy behind small camera, BigPicture.com, about his move to exclusively micro four-thirds cameras. It's Wednesday, January 9th, 2012, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, there's a a bunch of things to talk about. First up, we're going to try to do a quick roundup of some of the things that came out of CES 2013. A lot of cool little toys that popped up out of there. And I, yeah, I don't know if you guys, you guys have looked at the notes and I've seen kind of a trend coming from the the stuff that's coming. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, Also, Polaroid. You guys may remember that company. They are in the news again with some news about uh, photo bars, and this isn't this isn't a candy bar. This is a actual kind of place where you go to print. So we're going to talk about that. Plus, this just in: Art.com, the uh, the the art website, has acquired Zenfolio. So Zenfolio is now in the Art.com family. So we're going to talk about how that might impact the whole photo sharing world and. You know, it, it kind of for a lot of people it was a smug mug Zenfolio world, and now Zenfolio is part of Art.com. What does that mean? And then finally, there'll be for the folks that are listening to the audio version of this podcast. We're recording this this live on Google Plus, but for the folks that listen to the audio version, you'll hear an interview with uh, the guy behind um, a very popular website that's all about sort of small body camera photography. His name is Giulio Schiorio. And the site, uh, I always forget the name of the site. The site is smallcamerabigpicture.com. So Julian and I sat down and just sort of talked about his move away completely from DSLRs into micro four-thirds camera. so, cameras. So here to discuss all this stuff and more with me are Mr. Don Komarechka, Don K., and all the way from South Africa, Mr. Tristan Hall. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hello. I am, I am doing well. Let's start with Tristan. Tristan. Yes. All right. You know, traditionally, you know, at the beginning of the show, I start off with what have you been up to. It is really good to see you, man. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, is, it is awesome to, to physically put my, you know, put my eyes on you because I've never seen you. But we've been talking for like three years or two years or something. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's been going since Fotokina 2010. That was I think, the first time, yeah. first time we, we did this, yeah. Yeah, so welcome, uh, welcome, great. welcome to the show, and through the magic of Google Plus, thank you, Google, um, we can uh, we can have a face-to-face conversation. So let's let's talk about the things that you've been up to. What's going on in your world? What's up with Photo Comment and and all that jazz? Um, I have recently uh, acquired an iPad Mini, um, and uh, <laughs> awesome. that that's yeah odd for me because it's uh, been a, a severe Android fan. It's been been good to kind of get the change in that. But I've got a a project in mind this year that I've been 
wanting to do for for some time. So um, the iPad Mini will give me the flexibility to be able to to kind of do the editing and stuff and that on the road. Although the Android app launched for for photo comments, um, it still hasn't got all of the same functionality yet as what the the iPad and and iPhone version does. So um, I was just kind of wanting to enjoy my own magazine uh, a little bit better. Um, so so, so what, are your, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the iPad Mini? Do you hate it? You, it's it's just too. It's way too light, isn't it? I hate it. No, uh, it's perfect. It's absolutely <laughs> perfect. <laughs> It's awesome. Uh, I I don't know. I I you know the fanboy me comes out, but I I can't put mine down. I put I could put, I have the big one which I'm going to sell because the you know the little one is so much more functional to me. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I had the original iPad uh, that I got as a gift, and it was it was lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then I got the Galaxy Tab 10.1, and yeah, you know I've I've had a n- number of Android devices, um, and. Uh, the, the iPad Mini is the first Apple device I can honestly say really got to me. Like it, it really, I had to have it. Um, I played with it literally for for thirty seconds, and I knew I'd I'd, I'd have to have it. So uh, yeah, so it's great. I'm, I've been playing a little bit with uh, editing movies and that on it, and and from that point of view, that's kind of what I'm looking for is to be a lot more portable, particularly after my last little PC died. So um, this this gives me a lot more flexibility for that kind of stuff. Before we move on, just a little anecdote. I was doing a client meeting, um, and I, I was trapped on the highway, so I pulled over in the middle of nowhere. There are cows on the side of the road, and pulled out my little iPad Mini and did a hangout from the side of the road. That that was a life changer right there. I gotta tell you, it was very cool. Very, very cool. cool. Very right. cool. Also on the show, you can see him down there. Our silver-haired fox, Mister <laughs> Doug K, in the house. <laughs> Hello, Frederick. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm Good. jealous of your silver hair, by the way. I, I say that with, with true love in Just my wait. Heart. Just wait. It, it catches up with everybody. Yeah, but you said you said you got the silver hair early. You did yeah. the whole Anderson Cooper thing. Right? I did. I did. Yeah. Pretty pretty boy Anderson. 35, I got gray hair. My, I, I'll be lucky to do the uh, the Morgan Fairchild thing and just right. get like, salt and pepper in there. <laughs> well, every week we look. We're just we're looking right around the corner there. I don't yeah, see. Yeah, there's a, no, not quite. Not right quite. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> so what, what's going on, Doug? I know you did. Uh, I was going to try to join you last weekend. You did some uh, long exposure photo walks in San Francisco. How did that go? Uh, it was pretty good. There were seven photo walks in three days scheduled by Nathan Worth, a local photographer. Uh, I attended the three of them that were afternoon and evening. Went to three locations, got rained out on one of them, ended up in a bar. Other than that, we had a great time. Nice. Um, uh, I got a, I bought an iPad Mini, but it was for my wife, and that's that's how I do things. I buy one for her, and then when I finally get one, I have no guilt. So that's yeah, the yeah. That's I know. The way you, I know what your me. plan is. You're going to wait for that Retina version, right. and that'll be yours. Yeah, that's it. That's You're not it. fooling anybody. <laughs> uh, and then, um, well, getting ready for Cuba in a, another week or so. And I'm actually losing sleep. I actually wake up worrying about what gear I ought to take. So I think it's going to be the, the last minute I'll decide what yeah. goes to Cuba with me. There you go. And, and you I had take to take everything with you. And I had to learn a lot about Photoshop because I had to teach a class in it last week also. <laughs> <laughs> I did the same thing once, but not Photoshop. Some other right. people. Well, cool. Well, welcome. Welcome aboard. And last but not least, Mr. Don Komarechka. Hey, Don. How you doing? Hello. 
Hello. Uh, I'm doing all right. A little bit under the weather right now. I've been Uh-oh. spending a bit too much time outside photographing snowflakes, and it's caught up to me. Man, <laughs> I've been keeping of... up with your snowflakes on Google+. Plus. <laughs> they are awesome. i got to tell you, I really, and I'm not kidding, I really want to get a big print of one of those, or maybe a, a set, and put it in my house. I'm, I'm going to do that. That's on my list for Awesome. I'll hold you to that. Uh... Yeah, I'm totally going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's, it's taking up a lot of my time. Pretty much every day, about four hours of time is dedicated just to editing the, uh, the pictures that I take. And not, not only that, but the time out to take the pictures as well. So that's my big project at the moment. Gearing up right now for a uh, Photoshop course that I'm teaching locally here and uh, for a couple of other courses coming up in the spring. I've got my macro photography workshop at the Brooks Institute. And um, one of the, the things from that is I'm preserving snowflakes now so that the students can use them then in class as photographic subjects. So that's a fun little thing uh, to keep me busy. That is that is really cool. I love that. I love that. So how's just, just to, to close it off, doing the snowflake a day, and how much time goes into the post-processing of, well, like from shooting all the way through, I know you, you take breaks in between, but taking a, a shot from concept to posting on Google+, how much time are you committing? Uh, you're typically looking at between four and five hours when I'm dealing with Jeez. the interactions of, of people on Google+. The editing process is about three to four hours, and uh, and then taking the picture, you know, you know, I would guess maybe 20 minutes or so of, of me just round-tripping, going out, taking some pictures and coming back in. And that's for more than one, though. So yeah. about five hours uh, every day for just that one image. And it's a big time sink. But at the end of it, all these are going into a book. So it's going to be well worth it, too. That's cool. Yeah, and you're building your social media footprint. Every time I look over there, you've got another four or 5,000 followers. I'm like, wow. It's growing. It's, it's growing. amazing. Congratulations on that. Thank you. All right, uh, guys, let's jump into the news. The first, the first story I want to talk about is the Consumer Electronics Show here in Las Vegas in, in, uh, on the West Coast. Um, but that just kicked off, and there's been a bunch of photography-related announcements coming out of there. We listed a couple of them in the show notes for you guys to sink your teeth into. Um, one of them, the first one that I want to talk about is Samsung. They announced the new NX300 mirrorless and a 2D, 3D lens for it. Now, Doug, did you get a chance to look at this article? Specifically, I wanted to see what you thought about this because you're in that camp of liking these kind of cameras. Yeah, um, I thought it was pretty interesting. I mean, Samsung has been doing sort of pushing the edge in mirror, uh, 3D all, the, all across the place. I mean, they've got a 3D television out, 3D monitors. Uh, so it's not surprising that they're one of the first people out with a, a 3D lens that's actually just a single lens. And it's sort of cool. It's got a little uh, LCD shutter in there, a pair of them. So mm-hmm. it can take a sort of a left-side picture and a right-side picture uh, to the same sensor. It's sort of a neat gadget. And, uh, you know, I, it's gimmicky at this stage, but I think at some point it's going to catch on. Yeah, are you are you have you ever done any 3D photography and like no, I never have. <laughs> I mean, has anybody on the panel ever done any 3D photography? I've seen this. I've seen the. I know you know my TV can handle it, and I know there's cameras that do this, but I just never have ever had the desire to do it. Don, have you? I, I have a camera from. Uh... God, it must have been from the 1980s or early 90s. I think it's the Nostromo. Uh, it's a 3D camera with four lenses. Um, and it was designed to do lenticular prints. Mm-hmm. So that if you took a print and you just waved it on different angles, then the uh, the, the scene would change and shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought it on eBay for a couple of dollars and never used it. And that's as close as I've gotten. See, if anybody in the panel was going to use one of those, I think it'd be you because you're shooting those those snowflakes, right? It'd be great to 
get a slightly different perspective of it and you know kind of get that, more that's something depth that I might consider it. actually that's on my to-do list but the issue is when I shift my angle slightly so too does the reflection of the snowflake change that right. the surface reflection yeah. and then from one angle to the next it's going to be completely different so I've got to figure out a way around that um, but a, a 3d snowflake is in my future I think got it Cool, Tristan. What about what about you? Have you uh, you ever played with this stuff and you know got um, the got, got the uh, the wild hair to go do some three D? Well, uh, the Sony a lot of the Sony cameras offer you a three D panoramic. You know, so you sweep your panoramic across, and um, it it takes uh, from either side of the frame and creates a three D panoramic image. Um, but to be honest with you, I've I've never. I mean, I've shot the odd one here or there, but I've never actually really got to enjoy the benefits of it because of um, the fact that I don't have a 3D TV. So yeah, um, you know. But uh, yeah, it's it's. I've seen the results from it. It's it's interesting. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm a, if I'm a curmudgeon or what, but I I got a 3D TV and it came with the glasses and all this stuff and. I used the 3D feature of my TV exactly one time when I got it to see what it looked like. I put them on, and it had some 3D content that you could play, and I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. I feel a little sick. I'm not not doing this anymore. And they've been in the drawer, you know, and... If folks come over, I can say, hey, my TV does 3D. Look at this. And no one ever wants to, you know, check it out. So I don't know. That was the big thing. 3D, what, two years ago was the big thing at CES, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And now where is that? Now what, what's the big thing this year? Like not, the photography notwithstanding, what's the big thing at CES? It's about these ultra high definition televisions, right? And yeah. tablets and everything else. I even see, yeah. I think Samsung had uh, been showing off uh, a small little tablet, at least I think it was Samsung, um, that had 4K resolution in a 20-inch display. Oh. And that is impressive. I want a, a display that's maybe 30 inches or so as a 4K display for my desktop monitor. But you don't have that. You've got the small ones. You've got the big TVs that are pushing you know, 80 inches and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that technology is going to hit mainstream within the next little while just because a lot of people want it. There's no gimmicks. It's just better. Just really expensive right now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. You know, one, the one thing I saw, Doug, and I want to get your thoughts on this. I saw, what was the company? It wasn't Vizio. It was Lenovo, the company mm-hmm. that purchased IBM a couple of years ago. Chinese they, company, yeah. Yeah, they came out with this big, speaking of tablets, Don, this big uh, table-sized tablet touchscreen that presumably the, the, the idea is that you, you're using it as your desktop monitor or whatever, then you could pick the thing up and put it on the coffee table and play games, you know, touchscreen games on it with the family, that kind of thing. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't know if a, I'd use it. A gimmick it, but... in a sense and, and a probably <laughs> yeah. very, very expensive one and a great parlor trick. You know, everybody would be uh, entertained by it, but as soon as the guests go home, it, you know, the cover goes back on and it collects dust. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like the... Uh, so much other technology that we have. <laughs> I don't know. So one thing that I want to talk about to this crew. So there's in the in the list in the show notes. I'll put all the the kind of significant or the more significant photography announcements that came out. We'll put those in the uh, the show notes for this episode, but and in the Google Plus events page or the uh, the community page. But specifically, what I wanted to talk about was these cameras, like the Samsung. Um, Canon announced a power shot in Nikon had a 52 has a 15 5200 Fuji announced new camera and all these cameras I'm pretty sure all of them have wireless technology built into them now and and have been sort of greasing and and making it more friction free 
the getting online with your camera and being able to shoot and transmit directly online. In fact, with the, which one is it? I think it is the Canon, the PowerShot N. They're even you specifically saying this is great for Instagram and you know, that kind of thing. And they say of their in, in their verbiage, yeah, in their messaging, they specifically say that it is a great smartphone companion device. Right. And, and so I, I, I kind of hung on those words for a little bit. And I was thinking to myself, you know, the last time I heard that was when Palm and HP were pushing their PDAs at the end of their life cycle. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I'm wondering if that's where this is going to go. You know, the yeah. last stage of your compact camera is going to be a cell phone add-on, and then they're just going to disappear. Yeah. Uh, now, there's merits. I mean, they've got Zoom, and they've got better sensors, and they've got all of that now. But they won't have that two years from now. And yep. I think that mm-hmm. that bridge is closing so quickly, and this will fizzle and die. I wish it wouldn't. You know, if you it's look the at universe, the, the, man. It's the it universe. It's, they're like a you know like a big star that's dying, and it's com- it collapsed into a dwarf star, and now it's going to turn into a black hole. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what they're about to do. I don't know. You know, I feel exactly the same way because I was reading the verbiage, and they're like they're trying to create. It just seems like they're trying to create a new category for these cameras, the in between category when it's it. It's kind of analogous to like, okay, we went from horses to cars, say, for example, and you're like, okay, we're still selling horses, and here are some brand new horseshoes. These are awesome horseshoes this year. You're going to love these. Forget those cars. You don't need that. I don't know, Tristan. Tristan, what do you you think about this stuff? I mean... Well, I think it's it's interesting to note that... um, I looked at at Sony's announcements, and the bulk of the the cameras that they announced there were... um, were under two hundred dollars, you know, mm-hmm. and and so I think what what's interesting to see is, in fact, a lot of a lot of what Sony was was talking about there, you know, from their their camera point of view and imaging side was about bringing down the price of their video cameras and their their cyber shots and that, and I think where there is a growth market still for compact cameras and we've seen it here, in in South Africa to to some degree is that your top-end smartphones cost a fortune and not everybody can afford to to even do them on a two-year contract and stuff like that. So mm. there's still a market here for, for people who want good images, but perhaps they're going to only be able to afford a, a smartphone that's got a three-megapixel camera. And then something, you know, that, that they can Wi-Fi connect to their phone to share to Facebook and that has some appeal because, you know, the, the price of both of those combined is still going to be half of the price of, of a, of a top-end smartphone. So in, in emerging markets and that, I think, um, you know, and, and certainly from an entry-level consumer point of view, there's still a, a big demand for compact cameras. But uh, I think your volumes are going to start dropping down. Yeah, I wonder what that means. Though. I mean, because I... I... You know, admittedly, just from my myopic standpoint of when I leave the house, it used to be I would grab my phone and my Canon G9 and throw that in the car just in case something happened. And now it's just the phone, you know, so it's in the phone is good enough. But granted, Tristan, I see I hear your point about, you know, there, there are people that don't have as capable a smartphone, you know, that can that can shoot like that. And those that market would be willing to still carry two devices along. I just wonder, you know, I just as the prices of smartphones keeps declining, that just seems like a losing proposition. Well, I, I think I think a product that will change that for for quite a bit of uh, of, of consumers is something like uh, the the Samsung Galaxy camera. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you've essentially got a, an S three with a twenty one times you know optical zoom on it um, that doesn't make phone calls yet. Um, and and what's interesting is in South Africa, Samsung are 
distributing that under their mobile brands. So you can buy it on a data contract and, and things like that. Whereas it's, but even, even the cash price on that is about, you know, two, two or three hundred dollars less than what a Galaxy S3 costs in South Africa. So you, you can see that, that kind of convergence device starting to appeal. And, and literally, I think if they were to bring out a slightly cheaper version with a little bit less zoom and the ability to make phone calls from it, um, I think that would definitely take the market by storm. Um, and, and I think perhaps in a way what, what they're just trying to do is get the, the costing to a right point um, where they can afford to, to kind of bring both sides, the phone side and the camera side, in a compact, affordable package. And, and, and the problem is it will probably impact their sales on smartphones, you know, traditional smartphones, a little bit more than what I think uh, we anticipate either. So it's yeah. just waiting for that hybrid device to appear. But I, I was surprised. I mean, I, I expected that Galaxy camera to be $200 more expensive than what it is. So it's already begun, um, and I think that that is a good sign. As I say, they've just purposefully locked out the ability to make calls on it. So And, and to further that idea, I, I was looking at some of Fuji's uh, PR media stuff for CES, and uh, they, they've uh, released refreshes of the X100 and, uh, and the X10, and in there they say, well, this is being positioned as the third category of cameras, the first being digital SLRs and the second being smartphones. Compact cameras were not even on their radar anymore in, in all their PR messaging. So I think that that is going to be something that continues to fall off. But you're right, Tristan, that there's going to be a, a market in, you know, emerging markets are huge for, you know, handheld electronic sales and all these people need to be there. So yeah. there's going to be a position for it until the smartphones become cheap enough and good enough and then that doesn't matter anyhow. So. Yeah. Now, Doug, Doug, what about the looking at it from the perspective of the wireless piece of this in and is, or in other words, the connectivity of the Wi-Fi connectivity that we're seeing showing up in all these bodies, is that just, are we going to see that just become ubiquitous over everything going forward? And then the, the second part of my question to you is, why aren't these camera manufacturers putting in cellular chips into these things? So like I have in my iPad and my phone so that I can just, wherever I am, I can shoot instead of finding a hotspot. Yeah, I mean, let me take the second one first. I think Tristan hit on it because, you know, anything with, with a cellular connection, you have not only the, the chip and the battery and all that, but you've got a data plan you've got to deal with. Right. And so yeah. suddenly that suddenly that increases the, the, the cost. I think there are a couple of interesting things. You know, let's think about what a breakthrough the Kindle was. Well, the Kindle was the only device I have that has a built-in cellular data connection that I don't pay for. Yeah, that's it's true. Sort of, it's sort of brilliant. WhisperNet. Yeah. yeah, WhisperNet. And that works really well. Now, I had one scenario when Tristan was talking about this. I was thinking about weddings. You know, you go to the wedding. I don't know if they still do this, but you'd get a disposable Fuji or Kodak camera, be sitting on the table, and everybody would take pictures of one another, and then they'd develop them. They'd be film, and or I guess they're digital now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Wi-Fi is pretty cheap. So imagine you go to the wedding, and there's a, an inexpensive fixed focal length camera with Wi-Fi in it at every table. And everybody's sitting there in real time taking pictures and up on the big screen and, you know, in the, in the hall, there are, you know, pictures coming out, even video all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I, I thought about it. I said, that'd be really cool. It'd be great for weddings. And I said, wait a minute. All you have to do is distribute a smartphone app to everybody's cell phone and you've got the same thing. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> so, I was going to say that. Thank you. So for I, I came up with a great idea and shot it down in, the, in a matter of two minutes. But, you know, I want to mention one thing about these cameras. I was looking at, uh, CES. I was looking at the stuff that came out. First of all, the Canon P 
power shot in is one of the most ridiculous things. It's exactly what Don was talking about. It's sort of a useless looking thing. It's a camera look. It's a solution looking for a problem to solve. I'll let people look up what the power shot N is, but it's the weirdest thing. Doug, please don't hold back. Just tell no. us exactly no. what you think, please. But I got to tell you what I just, I just found out when I was checking out the show notes. We didn't mention Nikon. Nikon's got uh, yeah. new versions of the Nikon One. The J3 and the S1 are new yes. Nikon One cameras. Yeah. I, know, yeah. I know nothing about these cameras. I've never touched one, but I just read that neither of these cameras has an anti-aliasing filter. Mm. They're taking they're taking that off, and this is, I think, uh, perhaps the start of a trend. You know, the D800E had no anti has no anti-aliasing filter. Um, one of the Leica cameras, I think, they've taken that off, um, and now here's Nikon coming out with you know pretty high resolution. Um, uh, you know, point-and-shoot cameras without an anti-aliasing filter. So that's, uh, that's something to watch and see whether that's an interesting trend. Now, do you notice a difference in your in your photography with the D800E minus the anti-aliasing filter versus no. the camera with it? No, not at all. Not at all. Nothing I mean, I at all? Well, really? I don't, I don't have the other body, so I can't compare. But right, having, but your, having, your other body, your other Nikon bodies do have it on there. So you well, yeah, but they're, but they're much lower resolution. Much lower res, yeah. Right, so I've got a, a D600 at... 24 megapixels, and uh, that D800 blows it away. D800E blows it away, but uh, that's a, you know, that's more than just the lack of an anti-aliasing filter. But I don't know anybody who's actually in practice seen a significant difference by leaving that filter off. If I had it to do over again, uh, I would not buy the 800E. I'd buy the 800. Hmm. Interesting. But it's an interesting trend. I'm curious to know what the other guys think. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think, Don? Well, I was looking at the uh, the the new uh, one series cameras from Nikon. You know, at first I was thinking Nikon's making a big mistake making a small sensor camera with interchangeable lenses because I don't see there being enough image quality to uh, to push that up into the exact same category as the other mirrorless cameras. Uh, and then I did a little bit of number crunching and I compared, like everybody loves the D800 and, and Doug, I'm sure you love yours. The image quality is absolutely perfect, but the pixel density is very, very high. And if you look at the pixel density on the one series cameras versus that of the D800, they're about the same. So you're getting less resolution overall, uh, but you're still getting a very high quality image as an end result. And I did some digging and I found some great examples of images taken with them. So yeah. there's merit to these products and that's continuing to grow. And I hope Nikon sticks with the system, but I don't think their sales are very good. So, mm-hmm. By the way, that's the same pixel density as the Nikon D7000. So mm-hmm. they basically took that same density and um, just went from a, uh, a, a, a APS-C up to a full frame. And which right. the Nikon D7000 might have the distinction, and I might, I put that in italics, um, of being my last DSLR that I actually purchased. Yeah, so. Trey Ratcliffe told me that too. Yeah. Oh, did he say that? Oh. Well, he said he said he wasn't going to buy any, and then the D800 came out. <laughs> oh, well, that's true. And that's he was true. one of the first to get one. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he he operates in a universe with different physics than I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so Tristan, like switching gears a little bit and talking about just these micro four thirds cameras in general, and I know Sony Sony's, you know leading the pack there in a lot of ways with a lot of their bodies, or they're at least one of the leaders of the pack, along with Panasonic and, you know, some other guys. What are we going to see in 2013 in terms of industry shifts en masse towards that? Or is it just going to be sort of smooth sailing as we move forward and, you know, only certain micro niches adopting that technology? Well, analysts predict that 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 mirrorless cameras will outsell conventional SLRs by 2015. 
Mm. Um, and and we're starting to see some some interesting growth um, from the mirrorless market and and seeing that the the numbers and that pick up. Um, what I find interesting is, you know, in South Africa, you know, we we have the interesting example where a brand like Samsung is actually starting to pick up in their representation with the NX range of cameras, um, which is is interesting because you know Sony. In South Africa, I would say Sony's the major player um, mm-hmm. for us. We, we've seen, but the the Samsungs seems to start edging them out because of the the popularity of their mobile devices and their TVs, and that their brand awareness is increasing. And I think this is the big thing about mirrorless: is it gives it gives the other brands an opportunity to to actually dominate in this space, which they haven't been able to do before. Um, so I think you know that that's that's going to be an interesting trend to see where you know where it carries on from here and and who ultimately succeeds the most in in this space. Um, uh, you know I think that the Nikon One series cameras are the more I play with them, I, the more I appreciate them. But I, I still think the the perception is there that the sensor is too small, even even amongst um, you know mainstream consumers who don't necessarily know the differences. Really, they they just seem to be more drawn towards the the functionality and that that you're getting in you know the NEX range or the 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 Pen series from Olympus. So that I found to be quite interesting. I think ultimately this year I think we're going to see a lot more growth in that space. Um Canon need to catch up. Um you know the EOS M is a good first attempt but but there's some huge room for them to to catch up. <laughs> yeah. Um and what I'm finding interesting is how many people are not looking to their existing brand for their mirrorless solution. Yeah. Yeah, well that's me. I'm I'm not looking at oh I have I have a Nikon system so I have to get a Nikon mirrorless system. I'm, it's it's the antithesis of that. I'm thinking, well I have a Nikon system, let me see who's making the best in this other body. And that you know it's funny, that's the same kind of mindset I had when I made the shift from from Canon on film to digital or to Nikon. I think it was. Was it? Is that the way it went? No, no, no. I take it back. I went from Nikon film because I was shooting with old Nikon F3s and F4s when, and it was time to shift to digital. So did a little examination of the market and the, you know, Canon was leading the space at the time. So I jumped into Canon and then of course the lure of Nikon pulled me back into its gravity and that's, that's where I am. So um, before we move on, guys, um, actually, let's just move on to the next story here. The next story is about Polaroid. So Polaroid, as I as I teased in the teaser or the opening there, um, they are opening at least 10 retail locations in the United States that will, according to their press release, allow users, and I think they should say customers, not users, they will allow customers to order prints of images from their smartphones or using images that have already been uploaded to various social Network. So basically, you go into this photo bar and you can walk out with some prints. Don, let's start. Let's start with you. Is what's this about? I mean, <laughs> this is silly. Oh, I, mean, I, I would never ever. I would go buy just me. I would go to Costco and buy a twenty dollars printer and print from that thing at home. If I, I, I don't understand. And, the and here, here's the mentality. Okay, they want people to go in and they want to take images from their phone or any other device and uh, use their own software, which they seem quite fond of. But every single photo kiosk everywhere does the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And and then they want you to order a high-end print that will take 72 hours to ship to your door. 
you don't even go back into the store to pick it up and you don't get it immediately. Right. It just appears. That, so why did you even go there in the first place? Because I did, they use substrates including bamboo, metal, and wood. That's why. The website is online and you can do it right now from home. You don't have to walk into the store to do this. So I, it makes no sense to me. Doug, is this just another way of like, how can we, can, how can we speed our demise? I know. Let's go into retail. <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with Don. It's one of the craziest ideas I've ever heard of. I mean, it's, it, why, I mean if you're, you know, they're probably going to be in a mall or something like that. Well, why would they do something that's positioned for an impulse buy where the fulfillment takes 72 hours? Right. I mean, it's just it's nuts. It's not. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, and that's and this is a relatively short story because we're all like, really? What? I don't know. Tristan, <laughs> Tristan, it, like, let's paint a situation. Let's say you're traveling abroad. Say you're here in California, right? And you're at the Golden Gate Bridge, your first time there, and you see somewhere a photo bar. Let's say you're downtown San Francisco and you see a photo bar. Would you wander in there and take some of the photos that you snapped at the Golden Gate Bridge and order some prints so that they could be shipped to your home later? Or, you know, maybe that's not a fair question because they may not ship overseas. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think the concept is, is, an, is an interesting one. I think they're going about it the wrong way. I mean, Polaroid are partners on the Zinc program. So, I mean, why not allow me to, you know, go on a photo walk, meet back at the photo bar and do my Zinc prints immediately there or, mm-hmm. you know, do something creative with the technology. Um, unfortunately, I, I can see this working quite well with, with people that are, are big into Polaroid film, which they unfortunately don't do anymore, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and it having a, an approach, I mean, there was a printer recently that allowed you to, to print your, uh, in fact, I think Impossible Project are doing it themselves, where you can print your Instagram prints onto Polaroid film, um, you know, and, and that, that's, that's an interesting concept. I mean, something like that might add a different appeal to you and get you into, into something like that, but... Um, yeah, I don't see the point in waiting 72 hours to, to get it something seems, delivered it just seems to like, It seems like if they were going to do something like this, it would... You know, like, you, you, you guys have seen those red box kiosks around where you could rent DVDs from. A, I don't know, Don and Tristan, if they have them in, in your countries. But here, they have these red box kiosks that essentially replaced, you know, like the blockbusters and Hollywood videos for people that still want to rent physical discs. You go there, it's a kiosk, and you can, you know, hey, here's the latest movie. You can walk away with a disc and you return it to the box. Later, as I read this story, I was thinking, why wouldn't Polaroid make a kiosk? I mean, not that I would use it, but it seems easier than creating a physical retail location and staffing it and real estate and all that than just to put a kiosk someplace where you can say, you know, here's my image, let me plug it into my camera or whatever, or let me send my image somehow through Bluetooth to this device, and I can walk away with a print and then go show it to the people that I'm hanging with at that time. Rather, like Don was saying, time shifting, which is so 1985. Now, my, my question will be whether or not they sell Impossible Project film in their retail locations. Oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Where can you get Impossible? Uh, First of all, what is Impossible Project film for folks that don't know? Well, uh, Polaroid a couple of years ago decided to just can all of their film altogether. Some people might still have stashes of them in their freezer if they're trying to uh, save them past the expiry dates, but uh, there was no way to get Polaroid film anymore until uh, a bunch of entrepreneurs decided to buy up some old Polaroid factory space and equipment and decided to start reverse engineering the chemistry and the process to recreate film. And uh, they've gone through a a good number of generations of the film now, and it continues to get better and better. Uh, You can buy it online. You can buy it in a couple of camera store retailers here, Uh, and I'm sure you can find it uh, in boutique stores all across 
across the world. Uh, but I thought that would be almost like a, a stabbing a knife in their own back to say, well, we're going to start carrying this project that we didn't endorse after we decided to can it ourselves. And now it's, you know, we're going to try to make some profit on it. I was yeah. trying to think how could they ever make money doing retail stuff? And, uh, I, that's the best I could come up with. And that's a silly answer. Yeah. Yeah. I Sadly, I think, I think the company that that's, and, and I, I fear that, that we may see the Kodak brand going in a, in a similar direction some point in the future, because ultimately the company that, that owns the Polaroid brand in that now, I mean, I, I, I don't think they have a clear sense of direction of what they're wanting to do with the brand. I mean, the last time we saw the Polaroid brand in South Africa represented was when they were selling Polaroid TVs. And, uh, I mean, they just didn't sell. It was yeah. like, yeah, so it's a, a recognizable brand, but, I mean... Who's gonna buy a Polaroid TV? They it doesn't no... work. It doesn't work for everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now yeah, they have that I mean, camera as well. Exactly. I, I, I just I don't see it. I, I I really think they lack lack a sense of direction of what they want to do with the brand. What's What's that direction though? Let's just you know play armchair quarterback here, and we're we're the CEOs of that company of Polaroid. What What should they do? What would you do, uh, Doug? What would you do to pull the company out of its nosedive? I would sell everything I could to somebody who was smarter than I was. <laughs> and I think, I think in their case, there are a lot of people who are smarter than they are. I love it. Doug, Doug you, you remind me of, what was that? You remember the Muppet Show, the, the old guys in the, uh, in the balcony on the Muppet oh, right. Show? Do I look that old? Come on. You don't look that old, but you're, you're, and you're I used to, and yes, yes, I used to have a Polaroid camera, and I used to have a Kodak film camera, so yes. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Who were those? Mortimer and somebody else. I remember that. No, there wow. you go. Yeah. No, but cool. you know, I mean, just think of it. I, I was thinking, you know, I I have a son. I won't tell you how old my son is, but put it this way. People who are 35 and under probably don't have any relationship to the Polaroid brand. Right. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. so I don't, I don't know that their brand is particularly valuable because, um, you know, I, I don't know. Now, I think the, I think the retail brand is pretty minimized at this point. Don, what would you do? You're the you're the CEO of Polaroid. They've anointed you yesterday, and they're like, you're in the board meeting. They're like, hey, Mr. Komarechka, what are we going to do? We got to feed our kids. What what would you tell them? Well, the only value in the Polaroid brand is the fact that uh, you know companies like Instagram and, uh, and and other such companies have created a retro aspect to photography with all these different filters and that kind of stuff, and. I know that, you know, having a Polaroid framed print, you know, with the uh, offset border around it can have a retro feel to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that there might be some value in exploiting that, um, you know, to have uh, an app. I don't know if Polaroid has just a dedicated app to do some fun effects that would be almost Lamography-like. And, uh, and I think that there is a certain... Uh, I, I guess, I don't even know what the word would be, but appeal uh, is a general sense, a certain appeal to the market today. Uh, whereas the market of yesteryear that were interested in Polaroid cameras and found that convenient have absolutely no desire to own anything Polaroid these days. So uh, run along with Instagram, sell yourselves to Instagram because they know how to do that better than, uh, than Polaroid does right now. Yep. But Instagram would be like, what, who? Remember, <laughs> Facebook is run by people who, who Doug just said probably don't even know what the Polaroid who. Polaroid is Tristan. That's what would true. you do? You're running, you, Tristan. You're running Polaroid, and uh, you have the reins of the company. What are you, you going to do to pull it out of the nosedive? Um, yeah, I, it's it's a. 
<laughs> that's a that's a good question. Um, you could you could say quit. You're gonna quit and go. <laughs> you look look for the ripcord. <laughs> you know what I find funny though? I, if I remember correctly, they like two years ago. I I, I recall Lady Gaga was their creative director or something of of Polaroid, and you know that was when they first uh, you know announced their their attempt at an Android camera, which never really got to market. Yeah. Um, and, and it's kind of like they, they showed a little bit of promise, and I don't know what happened to them, you know, from there. And and yeah, I think Don's idea with putting a, you know, perhaps they should instead of doing the retail space and that, perhaps they should have an app which, you know, you can shoot to and print to and get it delivered to your door straight from the app, um, and get a Polaroid from there. I, I, it, I don't I don't see any way of them being able to resuscitate their brand because. I mean, I, I remember Polaroid, and I'm not nearly 35 yet. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, for me, the biggest thing that left a, a sour taste in my mouth is the, the cost. It was it cost a fortune to for every single picture that you took. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and and that that's the thing. And and some of those pictures have didn't hold out so well. You know, if their longevity was not so grand and and stuff like that. I mean, I, I've, my parents have photo albums still full of Polaroid, you know, pictures and that in there, but. Um, yeah, I, I associate Polaroid as, as a way of throwing away money, to be honest with you. Yeah. That's, that's well, it's, it. you know, it's, it, that was a good segue because Polaroid also announced, um, I guess this week, the Android-powered IM1836. God, who names these things? <laughs> the IM1836. It's a $400 Android-powered camera. Let me read the specs for you guys. It says it's 18.1 megapixels with a 3.5-inch touchscreen display. It's Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Has 1080p video capability. It's got a 10 to 30 millimeter kit lens with a pop-up flash on it, and it's running Android 4.1, which is also known as Jelly Bean. So, is that Doug? Is, well, is yeah. that is that their is that their golden See, this goose? This is this is what they ought to do. I mean, the idea of Android uh, cameras. And there, we're starting to see more of them, right? Didn't Samsung, don't they have an Android camera? Yeah, or yeah. Close, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So you have an Android camera. You have an app. You take a picture on your Android camera. You walk to the Polaroid bar, and you pick up your print right away because it's printed out before you got there. Mm-hmm. That's a business. Um, you know, and, you know, especially if it's, you know, in, in shopping malls and it's a small footprint business, uh, you can do that, you know, with, you know, people who are, you know, doing that. I, 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 I think there's a business to be had for people who make prints and either hand them to you or ship them to you uh, based on an app and an Android phone. Yeah. Have you seen the pictures of that camera that they're uh, proposing to make uh, on the, the CES show floor? Um, they're saying uh, in, in their material that the lens uh, and sensor will be in one unit and the camera body will be a separate unit. Similar to the uh, the Ricoh uh, GXR, I think is is their format for that. But the 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 mockups that they have, the the prototypes that don't work on on the show floor, don't look like that at all. It looks like there's a spot for the sensor in the camera body, and there's no sensor right in it. Yeah. And it it looks like the back of the the lens where the light would come through is just blocked off. And so their PR material doesn't match the prototypes that they're showing. And it, this is like Kodak is, or not Kodak, uh, but they're in the same boat. Uh, maybe uh, Polaroid should ask Kodak for some help. Um, but the company that's putting this camera together for Polaroid is the same company that makes uh, whatever's left of the Vivitar name. I think there's a couple of cameras under there. And they make like a Hello Kitty camera and a Nerf camera and a gummy bear camera. <laughs> and Sign so. 
Sign me up. I got to play I some myself back, back here. To pull yeah, these are the people that Polaroid has contracted with to make their new Android-based camera, and I just don't think that they're going to have much success. I wish they did. I wish that this will work and it will be a huge success for them, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I wonder if they're making the Will I Am camera too. Remember that one? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's you know, so I'm much looking, stuff. I'm, I'm looking at this. They're talking about the fact that they have an adapter that'll take Nikon F, and all I can think of is having a Hello Kitty with a you know seventy to two hundred zoom on it. You know, yes. An F two eight zoom. There's a market my, for that. My Hello Kitty body. That's what I want. <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even <laughs> commenting on any of that. <laughs> you, 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 the sad thing is. The sad thing is we could, like, two years from now look back on this and realize that we were all completely wrong and that, like, that's, that's some right. huge success. That's right. But you know, again, it, that's it, the magic of the, the Internet. That's the, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? That's the, that's the magic of the Internet. We can, we can be wrong now and then say, hey, we were wrong, but look at this. <laughs> you know? But, uh, yeah, this stuff's crazy. So speaking of shakeups in the industry, and this is my, my ham-handed. Oh, I like it. Oh, good. Good. My ham-handed segue. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of shakeup, so art.com uh, has acquired Zenfolio. So that in of itself is like, okay, so they acquired the company. So some of the questions that, would, that might pop up to people that are using Zenfolio right now are, okay, what happens to me? And I had that question too. So I sent a quick note over to Ian Stone, whom I've interviewed before. Um, at Zenfolio and asked him, you know, what's, what's the deal, man? What's going to happen? And he said, it's business as usual. So for all of us customers, it's business as usual. But I'm wondering from a, and I'm going to interview him Friday, by the way, and, and dive deeper into this acquisition. But from your, you guys standpoint, so Don, looking at the industry right now, for a lot of photographers, it was a two horse race, right? Maybe with a limping third leg of pictage, right? So there was, Smug Mug and Zenfolio with a maybe Pictage if you were, you know, doing that wedding portraiture stuff exclusively. What is it now? Is it a Smug Mug universe now? I, I don't know. I'm looking at this here, and uh, apparently, like Ian had mentioned to you, that it's business as usual mm -hmm. for Zenfolio. And uh, you look at art.com, and art.com is basically a, a portal where people can buy and sell artwork. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people can upload. So it's a marketplace. And Zenfolio can benefit from having a wider marketplace than uh, Zenfolio would be, uh, correct me if I'm wrong because I, I don't use the service, but it would be uh, like, if you were to have your own website where you can sell your own prints and you can send your own audience directly to your own message and to your own images and that kind of thing, uh, sort of you have to be the funnel for your audience. Whereas if they have a partnership with art.com, then the audience coming to your website can be much greater. And if there's good integration with that, then if you're a fine art printer that is not doing commissioned work, then you can have greater success because of that. So it may work out well for them, but right now there's very little details as to how the two are going to be integrated, so it's hard to speculate. But but from the standpoint of, like, we talked about Pictage, not Pictage, but Smug Mug's issues with the patent trolls and how the patent trolls sort of wait until you get to a certain size and then they swoop in and demand money. It, could this be Zenfolio sort of saying, hey, duck and cover, art.com, you know, or I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm completely speculating. I have no insight into this either. Don, what do, you, do you think that could be some of this or is it just business? 
patent trolls can always come in at any any stage for all for any company that has to do with software of any kind mm-hmm. and, and how they put it all together. So they make one change on their website, they unknowingly violate a patent, and bam, they're in court for three years. Uh, so I don't know that can happen, and it yeah. might, but I I would rather not speculate on that because I don't want to give anybody any ideas. Yeah, I know, I know, I don't know. Doug, you want to give anybody any ideas? I mean. <laughs> Well, I, you don't I seem actually, to be holding back tonight for some no, reason. No, I, I, I won't. But I, I actually have firsthand experience on the equivalent of the art.com site because, side because uh, about 12 years ago, I was the CTO of a startup that sold fine art online. Mm, okay. um, and so I, I know that side of the business. Art.com is really in the poster business. That's their bread and butter. Uh, and they're, you know, they're selling uh, not high-quality prints, but they're selling posters of famous images or you know fairly fairly substantial works let's say so the problem is if you if you take zenfolio if you get the idea that the zenfolio uh, customers meaning the photographers are going to start selling stuff with art.com through art.com so now you're competing with people like leonardo da vinci uh, because you can buy a Leonardo da Vinci poster from Art.com, right? He or can't you can, really defend himself anymore, though, right? Yeah, that's true. But I, I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's, well, it'd be interesting to hear what Ian Stone has to say when you speak to him. Because my guess is that it's more a strategic investment from Zenfolio, from Art.com to Zenfolio, more than it's a merger of their businesses. Um, because you know, uh, I, I don't think that Zenfolio. Tying into art.com is going to allow photographers to sell more. I don't think it's going to increase their volume substantially because it's a mismatch of markets. So the, the obvious synergies that we might see from the surface don't necessarily make sense when you look a little deeper. Right? Yeah, I think it's probably a business strategic relationship uh, more on the financial end than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Tristan, Tristan, what do you, what do you think about this deal? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are, what's the name of your magazine again? <laughs> <laughs> I could, that lower third doesn't it say photo comment or something so aren't you like aren't you like beheld into comment on things <laughs> <laughs> photographically yes yeah. um, I, I don't have a picture on this one no uh, I, I don't know I, I think it's um, to be honest with you I mean locally we I haven't uh, come across people using these services and that to, to any great degree but I, I think um I think it's you know for for a lot of these companies we we're going through a similar situation in that at the moment where we we're in discussions to try and and ramp up um photo comment and gain some skills in that which we we would like to see to be able to take our magazine to the next level, but we just don't have the ability to do in house right now sure. and and I think perhaps you you're looking at something like this is is kind of you know just using each other to strengthen and and you know kind of grow what your potential market could be, um, build on each other's strengths and, and volumes and stuff like that. I think that's really what, what we're looking at here. So this is classic, um, classic M&A, merger and acquisition, yeah. right? Yeah. So, okay. All right, guys, before we continue, uh, I want to give a nod to our sponsor. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Audible.com the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out the service and kick the tires. And I, like I said, in this particular episode, I'm a, I'm a huge Audible fan and I'm 
always feel like I'm always in the car and I'm always listening to audiobooks of some sort or podcasts. And one audiobook that I'm actually listening to a second time, because it's one of those that you kind of miss things on the first time around, but the second time I'm actually picking up a whole lot more. And it's called The Art of Nonconformity. And the subtitle is Unconventional Strategies for Life, Work, and Travel. And it's by Chris Gillibo. And you spell his last name G-U-I-L-L-E-B-E-A-U. And it's a, it's a really good book. It's inspirational when it comes to sort of trying to construct a, a life kind of based on where you what you would like to be doing rather than what you have to do. And he just sort of goes into the sort of life challenges that you have to deal with while weaving in travel and, of course, business and school and all that stuff and how you might approach things so that you can live a fuller life doing this stuff rather than sort of being a cog in the wheel. So pretty good book. The Art of Nonconformity, Unconventional Strategies for Life, Work, and Travel by Chris Gillibo. Now, if you'd like to try out that book, give it a listen, or any book of your choice, a free book of your choice, just head over to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. That's audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Okay, let's dive into the uh, this interview that I did with Julio Schiorio. He's uh, he's the guy behind the smallcamerabigpicture.com site. This is interesting. It's very pertinent to this conversation that we've been having on this episode because uh, Julio recently just washed his hands in the DSLR space and moved, you know, everything over to the Micro Four Thirds system. I think he's on Polaroid. So uh, let's give that a listen. I'm here speaking with Julio Showrio. He also known as G. I love that. I'm going to call him G for the rest for the rest <laughs> of this interview, uh, so I can say what's up, G. So, <laughs> Julio Julio Showrio is uh, the guy behind this website called SmallCameraBigPicture.com and a couple of other things that we're going to talk about. And specifically, I wanted to chat with him on this interview. You know, about his past and how he got into photography and all this cool stuff. But also, I want to talk about mirrorless cameras. We've been talking a lot. In fact, that's how we met. We we came together to to help out the smarter gam- camera or the smarter photographer guys on this um, this Google Plus Hangout that they were doing, and uh, we were both featured on there. So I wanted to continue that discussion a little bit and sort of have a l- more of a candid discussion about mirrorless cameras, smaller cameras versus DSLR technology, where things are going, and all that fun stuff. So, Julio, welcome to This Week in Photo. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No, it's good. It's good. I mean, this is, like you were saying before we click, before I click the record button, this is a community, and I'm, one of the cool things about my job, at least in the, the This Week in Photo aspect, is I get to meet all these cool people <laughs> like you and and pick their brains, and I have an excuse to do it. Rather, you know, if I was just some random person saying, hey, Julia, I want to talk to you for 30 minutes about mirrorless. You'd be like, oh, well, you know, I'm busy. <laughs> so, but now I can, now I can do it. So. That, no, that's cool, man. I, I, I'm totally, I'm actually pretty accessible, um, except for like the next week when I'm going to be in the Turks shooting. But uh, I get a lot of emails and I, I try to answer them all. I don't want to be like that dude that doesn't answer because I, I think that's kind of rude. But yep. um, I try to get to every email that I get. I've been getting 
a lot since I started the blog, which yeah. is cool. I'm, I'm yeah, down. same same here. I try to do the same. I try to answer all of them. I can't generally I can't get to all of them because that could almost be a full time job. But I get yeah. to as many as I can, or someone from the team gets to them. So let's talk with you. So let's talk about you. So. Well, how did you, how did you get into photography? Let's just start from the beginning. I know you have a large audience on your blog and all that, but for the people on in the This Week in Photo audience that may not have heard of you, who is Julio and how did you get started in photography? Uh, well, it's kind of my my, my um, adventure in photography. My dad, this very Italian guy, called me. You are adventure people, um, but he, he um, or my it's a bit it's an adventure. It's a little bit of a cowboy story. I. I um, I was 18 years old, and I had a really good friend named Travis uh, Miller, very cool dude. Um, he was 23, and he, I mean, I'm a single child, so I, he was like my big brother. And he was killed in a car accident, just like out of the blue. And it really mm-hmm. just like rocked my world, as it would with anybody. But the real kicker was this. His fiance gave me his Canon Rebel X. We're talking back in the film, film days, 1993. And I'm like, wow, what, what am I going to do with this thing? I had no appreciation for photography. And then I realized I never had one photo with Travis, not like one. Oh, wow. And, wow. Man, talk about realizing how powerful a photo is. Yeah. And then I kind of, in the grieving process, I started to become obsessed with the photograph. And I got the whole Time Life series of photography. And I got this book called The 35-Millimeter Photographer's Handbook. Yeah a few others and I just read them and I read them and I beat the crap out of these books and I just like I was determined to take the visuals in my head and create it on, on, on photo paper and show it to people and that's how I got started. Wow. Wow. And then, so, so now you, so that's like, I call that the, the Spider-Man moment, like the moment that you were bit by the radioactive spider. And from that point on, you just, you know, you were living sort of a different life. It was your fork in the road. So it then, really was. so then what path in photography that take you? Cause then, you know, once you get sort of bitten by that spider, it could go, Oh yeah, I have to do landscape photography or I'm totally into shooting models or macro or whatever, you know, where, where did it take you? Well, I, I think I think like a lot of people, when you start shooting, you just when you fall in love with it, you're like, I you just shoot everything. You're like, hey, right. that's an ant. Let's try to get close, and you don't even have no idea what a macro lens is or anything. Hey, that's a sunset. Let's try to shoot that. And it's like everything I was shooting was sucking. I'm like, suck, <laughs> click, suck, <laughs> click, suck. And uh, but you know, you that's how you learn. You just gotta yeah. throw it out there and experiment. But I found myself. I still do shooting. that from time to time. Click, right. suck. Right. I mean, you, know? you, you got You gotta hit a stinker sometimes, man. It's just it's just how it is. Yep. Um, but I found myself really loving urban landscapes, and um, I started shooting urban architecture. And like I, I moved, I, you know, I like moved to downtown Phoenix, and I was really starting to uh, to shoot um, just like the area kind of being built up. And uh, we started doing these things called urban safaris with my friends. as before the the term photo walk uh, came about, and we'd all like meet up at some cool area by the train tracks and go shoot the graffiti and. And actually have conversations with some homeless, and we talk to them. We give them a couple bucks and take pictures of them. And um, then I found myself going into street photography, and I really, really got into street photography. Um, so I, I was really into that for a when while. People say, well. When people say street photography, what does that mean? I mean, I, I, I have my own ideas. What, what in my head, what I think street photography is, you're, it's kind of like a solo photo walk where you're out and you're just. You know, you're capturing a certain aspect of life, whether it be people in a certain city. You want to capture the sort of the soul of that city through the people that live there. So you just go out and you take pictures of them. What, what does street photography mean to you? 
Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, and I think that a bit, that's a big reason why street photography right now is so popular because it's it's accessible. You have you mm-hmm. have you have sneakers, you know, you get put on your your socks and your sandals <laughs> if that's your thing, and you go walk and you shoot. Um, and for me, it was shooting people that I would meet on the street. Not necessarily, although I did a few times shoot like the uh, the, the homeless dude who's passed out. I, I never really found that much of a challenge. So I would actually engage people and talk to them. And, um, you know, you hear the craziest stories on the street from people. You just never know what you're going to hear. But then I would take a couple snaps, give them a couple bucks for their time because they're obviously hard under luck, and uh, I'd move on. So you know, tell me about that because when, when I think about street photography, it, it sort of takes me back to my military days when we were training. I was in Denver, Colorado or actually Colorado Springs, and they sent us to downtown to take – one of the exercises was to – and I think I've, I spoke about this on the show before, but we had to get a certain number of portraits, I think it was like 20, with a 36 exposure roll of film. And it had to be 20 good shots, which with a with a 50 millimeter lens, and it had to be head and shoulders, which wow. meant we had we had to get in close and, and establish a relationship with that person. Which was part of the exercise, you know, how do you break into someone's personal space and engage them in order to get a, a, a photograph of them? And while doing that, maintain your technical cognizance in order to be, you know, to get the shot, to know your F-stop, shutter speed, ISO, all that stuff, composition, everything, to get the shot right while building a relationship with that person. So when, that's what a street photographer does. How, so how do you, take me through the process of you. Like if you go out on the street, you see an interesting looking person sitting there on a park bench and you want to get a photo of them, what's next? What do you do? If it's something that's happening in the moment, I shoot it at that very moment. Um, I don't wait. And then if I want to shoot some more, I'll get closer and I'll engage them. And, I'll, you know, I'm a pretty enthusiastic person. I like to see the positivity of things and not the negativity. So maybe I'll see, like, in Miami, you have the craziest stuff that people are wearing. So I'll go out and maybe, like, a you ever see those, like, baby Bjorn things where the baby's on the front of the, the mom and, like, the little arms are all flapping around and stuff? Well, people will do that out here with their dogs. It's mm-hmm. pretty wild. So I'll be like, oh, people, oh, my God, your dog's beautiful. Let me shoot your dog. And, and I'm like, oh, okay. And... It, you know, or even before they even say anything, I've shot like nine or ten frames and, and, and I'm done. Nice, nice. And then what? Then what do you do with those shots? So you got the shot, you've broken through, you've given them a couple bucks, depending on the person, right? And then what, what do you do with the shot after that? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't really give any, anybody dough anymore because I'm not really shooting any homeless people. If I okay. were, then I would. But, I mean, the people, a lot of people I shoot in, in Miami um, actually could afford easily to give me some dough, which would be nice <laughs> if you're listening. Please just give me some money. But Give you um, a Ferrari, right? <laughs> oh, for real, man. Like a Honda, you know what I'm saying? Um, but uh, what I'll do is if I'm, I'm shooting, um, a lot of times I'll shoot with my iFi card, with my OMD or my Pen Mini. I'll shoot right to my iPhone or my Android phone or my any kind of iTablet device thingy. Yeah. And I shoot it right there. I say, hey, give me your email address. Let's connect. And I email them the photo. And so it's kind of like I'm taking a picture of them right on the spot. They're getting it right on the spot. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a way for me to connect with another human being. And that's the aspect of shooting people I, I just love is connecting with another person. Yeah, your camera becomes the passport to pretty much any, almost any situation and breaking the ice with anybody that you, want, you, that you want to actually have a conversation with, right? Exactly. And then it's also like a time machine because that person is going to get an email with this photo and they're always going to remember that time when they were just kind of doing their thing and some crazy dude jumped out and they're like, let me take your photo, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so let, let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about 
mirrorless and specifically small cameras, big picture. So what small cameras, big picture.com for who's the audience? Um, it's really anybody that is interested in learning about taking really good photos with really small cameras, you know? Um, and what's a small camera? Are we talking iPhone small camera? Are we talking um, the mirrorless, I, the Canon micro four thirds, mainly micro four thirds. Uh, okay, but you know, what I'm talking about is really just kind of, is really, you can apply it to anything. My wife is a, is a diehard iPhone shooter. Um, you know, we don't really talk about that too much. I would like to, but since, since what I own personally is micro four thirds uh, gear, I talk a lot about my experiences using it. Um, yeah. That's, you know, because I transitioned in, oh, shucks, I think it was February or March of this year from my Canon 5D Mark II system to a Pen Mini, um, wow. which is like, it was a real scary thing, man, because for a variety of reasons. That's, that's like, well, quite a move because you shoot professionally, right? So you move, you move from, a, from a big semi-trailer truck with 18 wheels down to a minivan, kind of, right? Uh, yeah, or like a a, a pedal scooter. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how how is that? Because one of the things that 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 I like I bring up all the time is, yeah, of course the technology is going to keep advancing, and image quality and optics and all that stuff will keep advancing. To at some point, even now we may have passed that point, but where the the images that come out of your Micro Four Third camera. Are at least equal, sometimes superior to what images might, that might come out of a larger, more expensive camera. However, how do you get past the whole size perception thing of you know bigger is better? You know how do you, how do you get past that as a pro? That was probably one of the easier parts of the transition. Okay, so what I did is Olympus had this thing called the Pen Ready Project, and they were giving away these pen minis, and I was like, man, I want me one of them pen minis. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was following Olympus on uh, Twitter and I was basically stalking them. They're giving like these little hints. And then at one point they're like, uh, they're like, there's a, um, we're, we're like in Miami and we're by a marina or something like that. I mean, my buddy snuck in and I got the camera. So then I started taking the camera to my jobs and I just put it in my bag. I'd have my assistant shoot behind the scenes and give it to the art director. And they're like, wow, it's so small. And they're having fun with it. Because I didn't intend to shoot with it. I was like, I was originally going to give it to my wife. I was like, what am I going to do with this? I got a 5D Mark II, you know? Um, and uh, then one day I went out and shot with it, and I started looking at the picture quality, and I was like, oh, it's really good. I mean, it's like, no doubt, really good. And um, that really helped me get past it. So then eventually I was like talking, I did the Art Basel project, which was 137 street portraits of street artists. And um, I told my art director, that I, one of the art directors I work with, I said, hey, what do you think of these? And like, all oh, these are beautiful. We love them. I said, you know, I shot those with, with that small camera, and they were blown away, as, as, as was I. I was like, dude, I can't believe I'm getting this kind of quality out of this camera that's not much bigger than a freaking iPhone. Yeah. And um, I said, can I use this for some jobs? Would you be down? They're like, go for it. And um, I shot my first cover with the Pen Mini, wow. and then I shot another one, and then I shot another job, another job. And, and I, after, like, the third or fourth one, I was like, dude, Canon stuff's got to go because it's cool and all, but... It's you know I'm a, I'm a, I'm running a business and I want something that's fun and high quality and and, and it, it what, are you, what are you giving up? When, what are you giving up when you go from a DSLR like your your 5D to the pen? And what 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 are you? What are the toss ups? The trade offs? Well, what, from going from a 5D Mark II to the pen was, was a real it's a real 
so you really have to transform the way you you think um, in terms technically about stuff, and mm-hmm. that kind of becomes secondhand after a while. But when you kind of switch gears like that, you really gotta you kind of have to start from 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 one again. Like what? Um, I mean, because f stop, well, shutter speed, ISO, all that stuff doesn't I mean, change, it's all, right? You know, expo- exposure is exposure, and these cameras are so smart. They're they're doing most of the work for you. The camera's going to get a good focus. In fact, they, I can't. The autofocus for a single shot autofocus with the Micro Four Thirds for me has been way better than anything I ever used with Canon. Um, so that was an advantage. The disadvantage is it's a smaller chip, so at very high ISO, you're going to get a little more noise. In reality, it's not like a major difference. It's not going to be like, oh, I can't use that because if you're shooting at something at ISO 6400, you're, you're really not going to use it anyways. Um, no matter really, really what you use um, for the kind of stuff I do, but it was mainly like the super high ISO. And if if I decided that I really wanted shallow depth of field, um, then then uh, you know it's going to be a little more of a challenge with the with the smaller chip, but. Yeah. The thing is, I I don't really shoot a lot of shallow depth of field stuff. But if you did, like if you're like I'm, I'm speaking selfishly, you know, and I do a lot of shallow depth of field stuff, and I want I want that bouquet. I want, especially if I'm doing portraits in their outdoor environmental. I want to I want to throw that background out of focus or be able to control that. You know, yeah, of course I can do that later in post, but I want to do it in the camera, and I know what my because I, I shoot Nikon, I know what my D seven hundred, I know what my seventy to twenty four, or I'm sorry, my seventy two hundred can do, you know, and I know I it's predictable results. So if I say, you know what, I'm going to listen to Julio, I'm going to go, I'm going to jump to mirrorless, I'm going to get my micro four thirds, I'm I'm going to be ahead of the tr- the the trend, you know, what people are going to be doing next year, and I switch. What happens to my work? I have to relearn everything, or what? No, no, not at all, not at all. Um, you got to use, you know. You got to got to look at the, the, the Micro Four Thirds cameras up until the GH3, and some can see the GH2, but really the GH3 and, and even the OMD, they were really just aimed at, at like soccer moms and just people just wanted a small camera and to yeah. mess around. Um, but now they they have like cameras like the OMD, the GH3. They have Olympus has a 12 millimeter 2.0, which is a very sharp lens, and you you can get shallow depth of field. I also have the 45.18 Olympus. Um, which which gives you shallow depth of field. I mean, if you want like that paper thin shallow depth of field, you can get the Voigtlander F nine five point nine five. Excuse me, um, and that is a very very bright lens. Really? But you know, I, again, for me, I, I don't shoot super shallow depth of field. I want like from the eyes to the back of the head to be sharp. Yeah, and past that, is, if it's blurred, it's cool. And if it's a little sharp, that's cool too. As long as you know, and I just you just work with it. So what other what other superpowers are you getting from mirrorless? Because I know from talking to Will Crockett over the Smarter Photographer, he's saying you can do things. Of course, you can flip it into video mode, and it's a video camera. Um, you can do that to with DS, DSLRs as well. But yes, mm-hmm. what are what are the advantages of being being able to do that on the fly with a mirrorless camera? Well, I think you just you just said it. You're, you're able to do it on the fly. Um, okay. When I had my 5D Mark II, I would hit the little button to the left of the uh, optical viewfinder, and a mirrored flop up, and then you got the screen on the back. And then to focus it, well, you have to focus it, and um, you have to hold it up in front of your eye. And then if I, I had a Z finder, pop the Z finder on, and uh, then I look inside and make sure that the histogram's right. Then I hit record, and you know, if someone walks towards me, I gotta like focus it manually. And it's like all this stuff. And then it's like if you want to do it right, you gotta get a follow focus, and you gotta get a rig, and 
Right, right. Like, I'm like, dude, it, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a still, I'm a still photographer. I'm not a cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to, <laughs> I just want to take a photo. And while I'm there, I want to hit a, I want to hit a button, man. And I want to run some HD that looks like my stills. I don't want to have to like, you know, what if you're shooting on, if you're shooting on the street and you're like, you see something cool and you want to capture some video, like a street performer, you can't be like, Hey, hey can you hold on for like 10 minutes while I put this rig on and my follow focus and, and, and put on the mic and they're like, yeah, whatever. But with a mirrorless camera, because you're, you're everything's live, looking through the screen all the time or the EVF, um, you just hit the, the red button and you're rolling video. And then when you're done, you just hit the red button again and you stop. And, and how does the video look? I mean, it, it looks good. It looks good. You're not going to shoot the video quality of a red camera. Okay, but you're not going to get that with a 5D Mark II or really any of the DSLRs either. You're going to, you know, you're going to like the GH3 and the, um, the, like the OMD, the OMD is going to, I feel the OMD video quality is superior to my 5D Mark II. And I had that Mark II since 2009 up until earlier this year, and I shot a lot of video with it. So let's talk about price a little bit. So it sounds like, it's a smaller camera, obviously, right? So it's going to be more accessible to a greater amount of people. What are, what are we looking at price differential-wise between, say, uh, a mid-range DSLR and a micro four-thirds mirrorless? Um, well, let's use the OMD as an, as an example since that one's really popular. And if you if you look at the OMD, picture quality is somewhere between a 7D and a 5D Mark II. That's just from my what I'm used to using with the Canon world. Um, body with a, with like a standard zoom lens is like 1100 or 1200 bucks, I believe. Yeah. Um, I paid a lot more for mine cause I bought it like the moment it hit. Of course you paid, you paid the early adopter tax. <laughs> so I think I pay like 1700 for mine. I don't know. Regret it. Cause I was like, you know, I, I dropped 3,500 for my 5D Mark II, I think it was, or 2,500 when it first came out. So I'm like, dude, this is great. You know, yeah. I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Um, you know, and, and it comes with a, with a, it comes with a lens that it came with is 12 to 50, which is kind of dark. It's a three, five to six, three, mm-hmm. but I learned, to, I learned to appreciate it as an all around lens, but it's not a, it's not a, it's not a 12 to 35, two, eight by any means, but it's got a power zoom. It's good for, it's good for video. It's a decent lens to come with the kit. Yeah. So you don't at any time, I'm sure you do, but do you, do you feel like you're shooting with a non-professional camera at times just because of the size and, you know, you, you've got the muscle memory built up for the Canon DSLR system, right? So going to the smaller one, it must feel like, uh, you know, how do you feel about that? It, 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 well, it, it is a non-pro camera. It's a camera made for like, you know, our mom. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the reality, man. It's like, you know, I, I don't know. There's a lot of people that are shooting uh, how I shoot. Um, I mean, maybe there are, but, uh, you know, it, it is. It's a it's a consumer camera. It's a consumer camera on the level. I think they position it on the level of like, I don't know what is it the the D six sixty or so. I don't know all these the names, but it's a consumer camera. But the thing is, we're at the the, the age where the the guts of the cameras are good. They're good, man. So it's like really what you're paying for when you go to a, a big pro camera. Is the weather sealing? You're paying for the the integrated vertical grip, and you're paying for a couple other things that most people won't use. But um, that's really what you're paying for when you're going from a consumer camera to a pro camera, pro yeah. so to speak. And, this, and of course, like the frame rates and stuff. But the picture quality, 
if you go from a 5D Mark II to the, um, oh, what was it, the 1D Mark, not 4, but they had the, one, the 1DS, the 1DS Mark III, I think it was. I think the chip was like the same. Yeah. So, okay, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about just sort of the technology piece of it because, again, you know, relating things back to me because it's all about me. But you know, um, the strobes and being able to shoot with strobes. So, again, I'm on the Nikon system, so I use the Nikon CLS or the Creative Lighting System, mm-hmm. which allows me to do all kinds of crazy stuff, control massive numbers of strobes from the camera position while the strobes communicate expose your data back to the body and make decisions that way i can do all sorts of creative things you know it's just a really high-tech system if i was to switch to a mirrorless or micro four-thirds system like say the olympus what am i giving up do they have anything comparable in that area no i, I personally i don't think anything from anybody is comparable to the to the nikon uh, uh wireless flash system i think nikon's led that that market for a while i think canon's kind of dipping into it now with that that radio transmitter yeah, thing they- yep but I, there, there's nothing that's like that. Um, I have the two FL600Rs with the Olympus uh, flashes, and um, they work wirelessly, and they're great for like doing stuff indoors. But the range on them isn't tremendous. Yeah, you know that's that you you are gonna you are gonna lose. And that. that's back to that's back to what you were saying is this is this is your mom's camera, right? This is a consumer camera, so don't expect to be shooting you know, air-to-air stills from one hand, helicopter to another and triggering strobes in the other one wirelessly and all that stuff. Nah, not not off on the camera, but I tell you what, though, the built-in stabilization of the OMD is, is like something from the future, you know what I mean? Really? Yeah, huh. it's super, super good. Uh, when, you, when you push the shutter halfway down and all of a sudden everything becomes like rock steady, not even kind of like, you know, like some of the IS lenses, they kind of like, they're kind of like mushy a little bit, so to speak, you know what I mean? Um, like when you're using a camcorder, they kind of like just kind of float around a little bit. Yep. I don't get that with the OMD. I put on a, a, a lens, push the shutter halfway down. It is like rock steady. I'm like, and what kind of what kind of what kind of uh, exposure changes do you get with that? So, like, if you were if you were the normal exposure without that on, with say you know f five six at two hundredth or whatever, what would it change to? If or what I, would your ability be if you locked it, it down? For me, I've been getting. I, I can usually save about two stops with nice. that stabilization. Yeah, two full not, stops. Wow. Yeah. Well, you got to understand the stabilization itself is super impressive, but you got a small body. Yeah. It's yeah. lighter, and that makes another that that's another difference too. I did a photo shoot recently of this uh, guy that owns an airboat company. He's this really rad, like old grizzled dude with with a ponytail, and we took him out on the uh, or he took us out on the uh, in the Everglades, and it was a beautiful sunset, and the water was still, and and um, I had the OMD up to my chest, and I put the flip screen down. I was kind of using it like an old Hassey, and I was shooting wireless flash, and the exposure was uh, was slow because I wanted to really let the background, the ambient light kind of soak in, mm-hmm. and I do it was just beautiful. And there was no way I could have done that with a DSLR because I have to be in the water, for starters, and I have to have a tripod. Right, right. So I may be in an alligator belly if I were to do that, you know? <laughs> Well, let, let's wrap this up. I want to I want to close this off with some buying advice from you. So, you know, photographers that are listening to this and like, okay, you know what? I'm I'm in the market for a new camera, and maybe going this way is the right way to go because it looks like you know I've been hearing a lot about this mirrorless and micro four third technology. Maybe I'll give it a shot. What's their next step if they're they're in the DSLR world? Maybe they have a five D or something. They're looking to jump up to the next level, um, or they're on the Nikon side. They're looking at the D three. Um, X or something like that. What what should they 
what should they do to to get informed? Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you not to just go like dump your current equipment. Um, it's it's not like you know I mean you, you got it's it's a bit of a transitional period. So don't just like if you decide hey I want an OMD I want a pen I want a GH3 whatever don't just go dump all your current stuff. Buy if you can buy the new stuff and and play with it and get used to it and understand how it works and understand what you know because it's gonna it's different for everybody. You're gonna give up some things. You're gonna get some things. Um, we talked about what I had to give up and what I got, but it's gonna be different for everybody. So you got to kind of get used to it because it's it's a whole new system. I mean you know what I mean it's not like you're going from one Nikon to another Nikon. Once you get used to it, then start, if you decide that you don't want to use the four-thirds camera or whatever it is to mirrorless to supplement your SLR, your DSLR, then, then, then sell off your DSLR. But if you want to supplement it, then keep both. Yeah. Very cool. All right. And then once again, on small camera, uh, bigpicture.com, what are, what are people going to learn, people going to learn if they go to that site? Um, Probably my most popular article is how to overcome fears as a uh, professional shooting micro four thirds. I kind of get into what I had dealt with. That's pretty popular. I talk about wireless workflow. Talk about the FL600Rs, how to set them up, how to get really good JPEGs. Because the big thing about the mirrorless cameras is um, they have a lot of tools for you to get it right in camera. So if you don't want to do a lot of post-production, they're really good for that. Very cool. All right. Well, definitely this week in photo listeners, head over to smallcamerabigpicture.com to check out uh, some of the articles. And Julio, did you write all these articles or do you have a, a staff of contributors? I have contributors and my managing editor is in New York City. Um, pretty good people. I got Olympus Visionary, uh, Jamie McDonald, and I got a cool uh, skateboard photographer named Adam out of, out of London. And I got a bunch of so a, a good group of people that contributes. Paula photographer from seattle so they're uh they're all enthusiasts which is ideal because they have a really good attitude and they write from the heart love it all right julio thank you thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to uh to chat with me and the audience about this it's been educational and again whenever i whenever i talk to people like you that that open my eyes to new things i hate it because now i gotta go think about buying something else <laughs> well just just play just just play it's just just play it's, it should be fun and uh don't don't you know don't go crazy about it just play and have fun see if it's right for you cool will do thanks a lot man thank you okay you can learn more about julio by visiting his website at smallcamerabigpicture.com or just search for his name on the uh the usual social networks or you'll find all of his links on this week in photo Dot com. All right, guys, it's time for some listener Q&A. This is the segment where we answer the questions have been, that have been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. The first question is from Doug Cook. And Doug writes, he says, in a future discussion, can you discuss Drobo alternatives? As he's saying, and I'm sort of reading through here, he says, when your Drobo stops working, you have no alternative but to purchase another before you can access your data again because Drobo uses this beyond rate technology. Um, and he's, uh, he's wondering if he doesn't want to be on the Drobo, what should he do? Doug, what are you doing? Are you on Drobo or are you using some other system? Uh, I was a Drobo user and I had the same problem that Doug Cook mentions in his mm. message and the same as Scott Kelby had, um, yeah. which is my Drobo died and the company was basically no help. Uh, yeah. And I, I actually lost all my data on the Drobo. What did you lose? Like I lost, what? well, I, lo- I was using Drobo as my backup, luckily. It was okay. my... Uh, my time machine backup, and I lost uh, I, basically all the data was lost. I had to reformat the drives. Um, and when you do that to your backup, 
you you don't have any confidence anymore, and you say, "I need Plan B. I need something else." Yeah. So I, what I'm doing is a little different than probably what Doug Cook needs. I have, um, I I keep stuff on my you know three terabyte drive, my regular drive, and I have a bunch of three terabyte USB drives uh, that I do backup on. But I also use Crash Plan offsite. Mm, um, good, good. which 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 will back up you know it takes about <laughs> it takes about a month to back up uh one terabyte. But then it's done it's incremental after that right yeah it is it is but i you know but imagine trying to restore from that you'd be in deep trouble yeah but he, he asked specifically about you know what the alternatives are and you can get generic raid devices uh companies like gtech or i think it's called weebtech or weebatech mm-hmm. um there're a bunch of them who all make industry standard RAID systems. And the advantage of having a non-proprietary system is that, um, you know, you can just replace the component. You can go to another vendor. You have all sorts of options when you do that. So if you look at that, so it depends on whether he wants to use it for main storage or backup storage because uh, those are somewhat different things. Yeah, yeah. Don, do you have anything to add to that? Because I know you're, you're generating lots of data daily. Well, how do you back that stuff up? I'm generating tons of data whenever I go out and do a shoot. Like the last snowflake uh, or the snowstorm we had, I probably shot around 300 gigabytes worth of data um, on on one sitting. So I'm using a Drobo, and I'm crossing my fingers, hoping that nothing happens. Um, but if you want the convenience of being able to unplug a drive that that fails in the array and plug in a fresh one, or if you run out of capacity and you want to pull out a small drive and put in a bigger one, mm-hmm. there's no ready-built RAID system to do that. And even if you are using a more complex RAID setup like RAID 5 or RAID 10 or something like that, uh, and your RAID controller card dies, you better go out and buy the exact same controller card, otherwise you're going to give yourself a headache and maybe mm-hmm. lose your data. So whenever you get into complex RAID stuff, most of the stuff is going to be proprietary, requ- requiring a replacement of almost the exact same... Re- equipment that you have. Um, Now, that being said, I wish there was more uh, ability within Adrobo to test uh, a hard drive, you know, for any possible failures that might mm-hmm. be upcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, you know, I, I use Spinrite on my drives, and and I can pull one out of a, uh, and I haven't done this in a while. I should do this. Uh, turn off the array and unplug the drives, and systematically one by one, run Spinrite on them to make sure everything is okay, and then put them back in, and then you know I don't have to cross my fingers for at least a little while. Um, but I deal with such a volume that I can't upload them to the cloud. Uh, my internet service provider here in Canada, uh, all internet service providers have caps on bandwidth, and my bandwidth cap right now has been uh, increased, almost doubled to 180 gigabytes a month, hmm. um, But and it used to be 90, and that would have been filled up from one shoot and then some, and That's it would have crazy. taken me a long time to get there. So yeah. I don't have an online in-the-cloud backup option for me. I have offsite, like I've got some three and four terabyte drives sitting in different places at friends' house and at the parents' place and that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And uh, so I, I have something. But uh, if the Drobo were to go up in smoke, I, I wouldn't have an exact replacement. So I'm sort of in the same boat as uh, as Doug here, uh, Doug Cook, the, uh, the, the writer. Um, but I, I don't have a, a, an answer. I don't have, and if anybody else has one that works as well as a Drobo but can be unproprietary, but I don't think there's an open standard there. Don, you look like, it seems like from what you're saying, you're an ideal candidate for that new file transporter. Have you yes. seen that? Yes, well, I listened to the uh, the interview that you did about that, and yeah. I'm on board for something like that, absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like it's right up your alley, somebody that, that 
cloud just doesn't work for them. You know? But I still have to send that over the internet, right? And that uses yeah, up still my bandwidth. Have tech issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless I'm doing it local, and, and there's another idea too, where uh, I, I if I get friendly with my neighbors and I put it in their house, but it's still technically on my Wi-Fi network, right. it doesn't actually have to go to the internet to back up. Right. So there's an right. idea. Now, Tristan, what about you? What's your what's your recipe for avoiding backup disaster? Um, at the moment, what I tend to do is uh, I keep uh, I've got two or three hard drives which I'm rotating around in different locations. Okay. Um, I'm not shooting enough at the moment to kind of worry about uh, having uh, massive amounts of storage in that uh, currently. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that that's pretty much the simplest way to do it. If for, from my point of view, the the, the drobos and stuff like that here cost an absolute fortune. What was um, Doug, what was so, that? What were you, <laughs> what was that fine. you just held I'm up? Sorry, like a those are those are four two terabyte USB drives. Oh, okay. They were used yeah. to back up a variety of things. Okay. Okay. Singer, continue, uh, Tristan. What were you saying? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So that's basically what I'm I'm doing at the moment is uh, you know backing up to to external drives, rotating them around. Um, you know when when there's some new stuff and that going on it. Um, I kind of use Dropbox as a way to just. Uh, back up my stuff from my camera so I've got the camera upload so any of my smartphone type photography and that goes through to my Dropbox uh, direct from my smartphone mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of kind of it at the moment I think that the big issue here as well from an online backup point of view is we, we do have uncapped services in South Africa but um, I mean, just prepping for for the show, getting uh, the uh, bandwidth speed that was suitable was was a major issue. Really, um, wow. you know. So, yeah, I mean, we've got a, a one meg ADSL line, um, kind of that that that's the standard kind of service offering that you can get without paying for business type services. Yeah. Um, that that will hopefully all change in the next few months. But I mean. Yeah, it, it took me when I got a new computer um, and pulling down my Dropbox and that because it didn't want to sync across the network at home. Um, it it took, geez, was about two three weeks to bring down the stuff from my Dropbox uh, oh, to geez. finally have it all synced up properly. So oh, wow. yeah, it was it, it was fun. Well, I mean, um, and that that's the big issue with online backup. I mean, that's a great concept, but. Uh, what what I would literally need to do is have a service here where I could send them a hard drive, and then incrementally start backing up stuff. Yeah, I think Crash Plan Crash Plan allows you to do that. I'm pretty sure you can you can actually send them a hard drive and they'll plug it in to the network to get you started. And if you crash, they'll uh, you can order a hard drive and have them send it back down to you, so you can avoid those weeks of downtime. So okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So, Twip, Twip Army, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, just quickly, my my the way that I'm backed up here is I've got two Drobo S's sitting in a closet, um, and Crash not Crash Plan Carbon Copy Cloner runs every night and change copies the deltas from one to the other. So I've got one as my sort of primary storage pool of space and. Like all my Twip episodes, everything, photos, everything go onto that drive, and then at the you know at that specified time, whatever changed on whatever data changed on that drive that day gets moved over to the other one. So if one bursts in flames, then I'm I'm set. My other line of defense is 
there's a um, uh, time capsule in the house that my computer backs itself up to. So, you know, I have data on the Drobos, and then the computer itself is backing all of its data up onto a time capsule. So I'm set there. Then Crash Plan is running to pump things up into the cloud, and then iCloud for various data like calendaring and all that. So if my so the, the, there's a couple of points of failure in there, but all's when it's all said and done, if my house gets hit by a torpedo or something or a missile, I will still have some sort of data that I can reconstruct <laughs> from somewhere. But it's not it's not perfect. I don't think there's a perfect solution just yet. So but you know, we're all just figuring it out. We're all just figuring it out. Okay, guys, let's let's jump into the listener Q and A. This uh, or the the last piece of the listener Q and A. This is um, Ron Klein. Until I'm following the show notes, Ron Klein says, uh, occasionally guests mention reviewing their old images with newer software and report amazing results. He wants to reimport some of his original digital videos or his original videos with the thought of reviewing, editing, and enhancing them with some software. So he's looking for recommendations, considerations on different products that he might use to uh, reconstruct some of his images. So um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, I'm, not a, I'm not a big video expert. I'm, I'm kind of a, a Luddite when it comes to video. What about you guys? I, I think that the ability to improve a, a JPEG image in processing has, uh, has grown significantly with applications on smartphones and smart devices and tablets and things like that yeah. in the last two or three years. Now, without having to dig into the advancements in raw data, and that's important here because the video would be much more akin to a JPEG image than it would be a raw file. So I think that, yes, there is potential for the software in the future to improve greatly in how it handles video, um, especially when you're getting into high-definition video and all of that. You're going to have software like Lightroom and Aperture and Photoshop and all the big guys, I guess, continue to improve. Uh, in the last versions, they made some big improvements. I don't see why that would change. Yeah. And um, I would see apps like uh, you know, Snapseed or, or what have you that are really good JPEG processors start to do video. And I think that the underlying technology for them is about the same. Uh, and then they just have to add in layers for, you know, cutting and slicing and, and being able to put different compositions together. So absolutely, the technology will be growing. I can't recommend anything right now because I use um, Adobe Premiere to just put little things together and it's like hitting a mosquito with a sledgehammer. <laughs> uh, and, and so there's got to be a simpler solution, but I just don't know about it. My simpler, simpler solution is I have Premiere as well, um, but I use ScreenFlow for like just quick brute force editing it's awesome it's like screenflow for me is like kind of what iMovie should have been it is just the a simple timeline you can drag some transi transitions in there you can plug it directly into your youtube account and you're done you know so definitely check that out it's called screenflow cool um, okay all right guys let's let's just jump into the picks of the week now and uh, and get through that so don while you're on a roll here what's your pick of the week well, I was digging around my desk to see if I could find anything useful uh, to, to throw <laughs> as a pick. And, and I came up with this. This here, for those in the, the, the audio, is a 16-slot AA battery charger. And uh, it's from a company called Titanium Innovation, sort of a no-name company. Yeah. Um, but when I'm doing all of my snowflake photography this time of the year, I chew through batteries like crazy. Um, this thing charges fast. It uh, comes with a wall charger and a, uh, a car charger, so you can charge on the go. And uh, I'm using the uh, the Sanyo uh, Eneloop 
batteries uh, with this, and it works absolutely perfectly. It's about 50 bucks to charge 16 batteries, and I haven't been happier. So Wow. Cool. All right. And that, that has geek written all over it, I got to say, because I want it. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot for that, Don. All right, no Tristan, um, I'm wondering what your, what might be your, wait, hold on, wait, wait, where, what is your pick of the week? <laughs> it, it'll be the iPad mini. <laughs> yeah, for those that are listening, iPad I'm, mini. those that are just listening to the audio, I was holding up my iPad mini to the camera, so... Yeah, no, the the iPad Mini would be my pick. Um, you know, I I I'm a major Android fan, and I I enjoy the Android operating system. Um, but I there's certain photographic applications in that that I've just found um, Apple still have the stronghold on in terms of iPad, and so the the ability to do that in something that fits in my back pocket is is really the winning fact for me. Um, uh, you know, if I'm going to carry a 10-inch tablet or a 9.7-inch tablet, I may as well carry a laptop. Um, so the, the, the iPad mini for me is, is a huge, huge bonus. And, um, you know, that I, I was shooting a lot more when I had a, an iPad originally. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to shoot a lot more and with the project that, uh, I'm wanting to work on in, in documenting, uh, everyday people. Um, I think this is going to have a, a major plus for me. So. Wonderful. Yeah. Cool. Well, welcome. Did you get the uh, the Wi-Fi only version or the cellular version? No, uh, the only one I could get was the 64 gig cellular. So oh, that's dude. that's what I got. That's what I got. Was Very... and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> there is no other. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Tristan. Doug, what's your pick of the week? Well, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, time lapse in the last uh, month or so. And I, one of the challenges in time lapse is what some people refer to as the holy grail of time lapse, which is shooting from daytime into nighttime when you might have a variation of a, maybe 10 stops or so. And, you know, the, 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 the idiot way to do it is put your camera on, um, uh, on automatic exposure and let it do it. Uh, but then you get pretty, pretty bad video. Yeah. Uh, the, the right way, of course, is to uh, do it in manual and occasionally, you know, reduce your shutter speed by one stop. Uh, but then you get these big jumps. So this guy in Germany, Gunther Wegner, has developed this app called LR Time Lapse. It's available for Windows and Mac, and we could spend a whole show on it. But he solves the problem because what he does is he works on the metadata in and out of Lightroom and selects the keyframes where you have these big transitions, and then you go in and just tweak the keyframes so that they're similar exposure, and then he does all the smoothing in between. And uh, basically, you can get smooth uh, time lapses from day to night um, uh, across a huge exposure range. Anyway, check it out. It's He's got a, 10 euro, a book for 10 euros, which uh, I recommend for anybody who's doing time lapse. Uh, but the application itself costs, I think, 89 euros. Cool. Now, Doug, is, is time lapse the new HDR? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, time lapse is the old HDR. Time, time lapse has been around for a lot longer, but no, yeah, no yeah. I think it's the old HDR. Okay, got it, got it. Very cool. All right, so my thanks, Doug. My my pick of the week is um, a audiobook that I'm listening to, and I always stretch the whole rules of it being photography related. This book can be related to photography if you apply it. So it's called The Art of Nonconformity, and the subtitle is Unconventional Strategies for Life, Work, and Travel by Chris Gillibo. And uh, basically, it's a book, an audio, um, I think you can get a printed book version of it as well, but the audio is about 
how to kind of switch your mindset away from the whole nine to five corporate think and more into I'm an independent person that is building income streams to drive the kind of life that I want to live rather than, hey, I'm, you know, I have to buy my house in a certain radius of the job that I work at so my commute won't be that long and then I get the car and I get the house and then I get the mortgage and I have to get a raise to pay the mortgage and if I get laid off then I'm screwed and all that stuff. So he just sort of goes into how to break that mindset, mindset and shift into more of a uh, own your own destiny kind of thinking. So it's really cool. It's a really interesting book. He also wrote another book called The, the $100 Startup which is kind of along the same lines, but it's more of a business-focused book that talks about how you can create a really profitable business from uh, just, you know, with little or no startup capital. So really interesting. I'd recommend both of those. All right, guys. Um, this is sad. We're at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Don Komarechka, you held up a magazine at the beginning before we started recording. What was that? Before well, I, I was going to say, uh, you can find me on the cover and inside of the uh, the current issue of Outdoor Photography Canada. Oh, and, I uh, thought you were going to say Playgirl magazine or something. That's cool. Not, not this month, no. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I, I, I write regularly for Outdoor Photography Canada, and uh, my regular column this year just surprised me by getting the cover shot. So Congratulations, uh, man. I was talking about, uh, thank you, I was talking about ideas about how to uh, add cheap and free things to your camera bag uh, to make you, well, not, not to make you a better photographer, but to give you more options. And uh, that includes a Pringles can, a sheet of welding glass, and a small rock. So MacGyver, very good. There you go. I like it. Very cool. Well, congratulations again. And we're so if we're if we want to get that magazine and we're in the United States, do we have to mail order it, or is there a way to get it? You order it through the yeah. website. Yeah, you can get it right from uh, right from the website uh, outdoorphotographycanada.com. dot uh, com. And there are some boutique stores in in the U.S. newsstands that will carry it as well. Okay. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. It's got a water droplet containing the Earth on the cover, so that's kind of a fun thing. And for all of my uh, the, the rest of the stuff that I'm doing right now, just check me out on Google Plus. And uh, my website is doncom. ca. D o n k o m. ca. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. No problem. All right, Mr. Doug K. Where can people go to find out where you uh, are doing your next photo walk? You can always go to DougK.com, which is the portfolio site and has links to everything else. And if you go to Google+, Plus, which is where I spend most of my time, don't make the mistake Frederick made. Don't, if, you, if you look for Doug K and you find a red background, that's my evil twin. You want Doug K with the green background. Doug. Doug lives in the metaverse, so <laughs> we live in the in the universe with uh, with the green Doug K. So, <laughs> so follow the green Doug K. The evil one with the strange gravity is the red one. Otherwise, you'll be susceptible to attacks of antimatter. Yes, which would not be good. Dark matter. All right, Mr. Tristan Hall, where can people go to uh, to catch up with you and and hear you comment about photos? Photocomment.net <laughs> or about me. Uh, forward slash Tristan B. Hall. Awesome. How's the about that me working out for you? Is, is that your nice your hub of all things Tristan? Uh, yeah, it's basically I've got too many links on too many places, so it's kind of just the the place to find me. Bring so, them all together. Um, yeah. All right. Well, very but good. That's the best place. All right. Well, guys, thank you very much for coming on. And listeners, if you want to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can check us out at thisweekinfoto.com. And please join our community on Google+. Don Komarechka is killing us. 
So not that it's a raise or anything, but it's fun. Uh, so yeah, but definitely join our community on Google+. And finally, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. 